0: Hey, outcomes rocket listeners. Thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Tired of your business's healthcare costs unpredictably increasing every year? Healthcare costs are typically a business's second or third line item expense. And if you're like most employers, it's an expense that's growing faster than your revenue. Luckily for employers, Novetta Health has the solution. Novetta Health is a full service healthcare consulting firm with proven strategies to lower your healthcare costs by up to 30% or more. They operate on a fee-for-service model and never mark up any of their medical or pharmaceutical claims. None of your employees have to leave their doctor or pharmacist either. Their health captive and pharmacy benefit manager are the most cost-effective and transparent solutions in the whole country. What they do is not magic. It's just honest. So, if you're tired of overspending on health insurance and want to learn more, visit outcomesrocket.health/save for a free spend analysis to see how you too could save by switching to Noveta Health. That's outcomesrocket.health/save for your free spend analysis. outcomesrocket.health/save. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Jean Wright. She's the VP Chief Innovation Officer at Atrium Health. Jean is responsible for leading the advancement of innovation initiatives throughout Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina as Chief Innovation Officer. Her focus is on working with teams to raise the bar for patient care and population health through human-centered design business development, and novel medical technologies. Dr. Wright practiced as a pediatric anesthesiologist and intensivist. She held positions as physician executive at Emory, chair of pediatrics for Mercer, and executive director for Memorial Health's Children's and Women's Hospital in Savannah, and was a chief medical officer for Carolina's health system Northeast. She is a health services researcher has served on federal advisory committees and given testimony in the U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate. She's an outstanding guest, and I'm super excited to dive into some of her thoughts on the health business that we're all in. So, Gene, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
1: Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to uh, participate in this conversation so Lots happening in healthcare?
0: There, there certainly is. So, so Gene, anything that you want to share with the listeners about you that maybe I didn't cover in your intro?
1: Well, let's see. You know, I think you've described the fact that I have a clinical background and a business background, and often kid that when I went to business school, you know, I realized, oh, there's a whole class you can take on innovation. There's a whole class you can take on analytics, and realizing that was in the mid '90s when I took them, they were really uh, formative to my looking at healthcare both as a physician leader a hospital leader and now as an innovator so i feel like i've had the good fortune of seeing healthcare from several different sides
0: that's really neat yeah and and you you're definitely forward thinking jean in in making that decision so early on today is it's cool you know, like to be to be in roles like that. But you saw it early on before it, it became the style or or really kind of the necessity. So as, as we dive in here, I'd love to hear more about what got you interested to get into healthcare to begin with.
1: Well, I um, always wanted to be a doctor, literally from sixth grade on, which was pretty interesting because oh. I come from a blue collar immigrant family and no one had been to college, much less med school. But Just aspired to be in healthcare. And frankly, 50, 60 years later, I still have that same passion. I love healthcare. I'm fascinated by it. You know, I'll watch anything on the Discovery Channel, even if it's not related to what I'm working on at the time. (laughs) I think the intersection of of humans, our health, and now technology and analytics and augmented reality is just, I wish I believed in reincarnation because I'd want to do it all over again. Wow,
0: that's amazing! So, what is it that got you so interested in it? In healthcare in general? Yeah, like I mean, it's from six to even after after death and real life. You yeah. You, so like why, <laughs> why 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 are you so interested in it?
1: I think it's that common connection point of probably said way too many times high touch and high tech. It's mm-hmm. a place where you can bring your interest in science and see it interact with the human condition. I frankly like going back and forth between those two extremes. Case in point, I've just come out of a meeting where we've talked about social determinants of health and what we can do on a community level. Later this afternoon, I'll go into a discussion that's very technical and will have to do with how we look at analytics and how we can predict disease courses or disease pathways for patients Mm -hmm. and that ability to cross back and forth. And at the center of all of it, is a patient. I think of an email, even though I don't practice anymore. Mm-hmm. I got an email this morning from a grandmother who's raising a grandchild and she's desperate because she can't get into the healthcare system the way that she needs to. She's passionately advocating for her granddaughter. And, you know, I used to say when I was in the business of children's hospitals that we didn't treat children. Mm-hmm. What we actually treated was somebody's child. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an N of one. It was a unit case. And that's how people relate to the system. Although, as we'll probably get into the discussion further on, the system's not very well designed for that mass customization. Mm. It's not very well designed for us understanding what impacts the majority of people and then how do we fine-tune it for you as a person. So that intersection to me just is drawing and compelling.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. It's definitely an interesting intersection for sure. High-touch, high-tech. So today, what would you say is a hot topic that needs to be on every medical leader's agenda? And how are you and your organization approaching it?
1: Well, I'd say top of mind for us is disruptive innovation. And I think if we'd had this conversation a few years ago, we would have all fumbled around our definition. We would have confused it with the bright, shiny object or the new new technology that had the wow factor. Now we're really understanding that disruption is not technology per se, it's a new business model. Hmm. So whether that's moving from volume to value, or whether it's somebody coming with a new value proposition and bundling it in a different way, our systems are not very nimble at either recognizing those new business models, or probably even more importantly, making a pivot and a change to that. So let me build upon that. I think an example that we have really kept a keen eye on is the whole field of primary care. I think for the last 25 or maybe even 50 years, primary care has looked pretty much the same. You go to the doctor's office, Dr. Marcus Welby sees you, they write something in a chart, oh, we advanced it, now they put it on a computer. But pretty much the interaction, the payment system through insurance or your employer, has pretty much stayed the same, and now we have a whole new uh, line of primary care uh, opportunities or threats, depending on how you see it in your market, around new forms or alternate models of care. Many of them are subscription-based, some are direct-to-consumer models, some are almost um, reduced down to the level of a chatbot. Those new ways of accessing not only patients but payers is about to disrupt the typical relationship of health plan, patient, and the health system. Mm-hmm. And so when when we've been turning our eyes around looking at what are the things most likely to disrupt our industry, once you look past the government and its impact on movement to value based care, which has been great in the theory, but still been very slow in development, we see like in our own market, there's probably 40 disruptors in the space of alternate models of primary care that we know that are out there, that are growing. Most of them, in fact, almost all of them are backed by venture capital funding, and they have a different business model, and they have a different metric of success. And for physicians who are frustrated right now, they're likely to jump ship and go to those kind of models. For patients who can't get access into the system, they're likely to jump ship And then for a whole generation, frankly, that's very comfortable doing everything on a mobile device, whether it's a phone or iPad or or an old-fashioned telephone, they're likely to jump ship. So we're keeping a a keen eye and, frankly, trying to disrupt ourselves in that space as well because it's a question of be disrupted or Mm -hmm. disrupt yourself. And for big, healthy, successful systems, Disrupting yourself at the peak of your performance is really, really hard. For sure.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of the the whole example of like a Kodak, right? I mean, you're at the peak of your performance, you got a solid business, you're adding value, and then digital comes through and just sort of changes things. <laughs> and, right. and so, what do you uh, do?
1: <laughs> you know, right? And it's a- you know, just as you're alluding to, we have become believers, and subscribers, and, and Clay Christensen's theories of disruption. And frankly, it has really helped us separate the wheat from the chaff. And we can see that uh, phrase he often uses, when is something good enough? You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a mom, I'm a busy working executive, and so when my teenage mom calls me on Friday afternoon, and she's all the way across town, which on Friday afternoon is an hour drive, and she says, I have a sore throat, but tomorrow I want to compete in a gymnastics competition or a cheerleading competition, I'm thinking, what's good enough? And frankly, what's good enough for her in that situation, I'm thinking, hmm, all I really need is a throat swab. A throat virtual visit won't get me that. So I'll send her to an on-demand clinic, a proprietary on-demand clinic. And I give her some coaching of what to say. And -hmm. then I get on the phone with that person 25 miles away. That's good enough. If you had asked me five or 10 years ago, would I ever send my child to somebody other than a board certified pediatrician, probably attached to a major children's hospital, then no way I would have thought about it. Then today we look not only is it CVS and Walgreens and Walmart and other groups, but even things like Walmart are talking about behavioral health. Right. Services that we would have thought were just too hard to bring into a mass customization model and yet they're venturing into that. So um, just as you made reference to, we Kodak underappreciated that people wanted something that was just good enough, or there were several other players at the time, but that's always the story they tell, just like Blockbuster's underestimated Netflix, and the stories go over and over and over. So I think in healthcare, many of us have kind of chafed and said, mm-hmm. well, those stores may work for retail industries, maybe cars, or maybe cameras, but they don't work for healthcare, and we're learning they work for healthcare. Good enough is good enough, or getting to non-consumers, for example, when Walmart starts offering behavioral health, we pick up non-consumers, non-users, people who frankly were disenfranchised or couldn't get into the system because it either wasn't cheap enough or they couldn't get access to it.
0: Yeah. That's uh, such a fascinating insight there, Gene, and, and I love the context that you that you sort of made, you know, between the Kodaks and the Blockbusters, which is another great example, and to now this belief that is a myth that these trends and the way of disruption can't affect healthcare. Or, well, it definitely can especially today where we're seeing evolution in in payer models you know and, and and employers taking different stances in the way that they are interacting with payers and the health system so it's definitely an evolving time i definitely give you and your team a lot of kudos for for having this forward thinking uh perspective it's going to it's going to make a big difference for you guys well,
1: us- i hope so we we really take it as a an element of stewardship or responsibility of stewardship. We often use the phrase that we're a watchman on the wall. People Mm -hmm. will kid us and say, your work is not on a strategic plan. And we push back and say, it's because we're looking three to five years out. Mm -hmm. You know, we were looking at genomics before the possibility of bringing genomics into primary care was likely. I just returned from HIMSS and was in an all-day session where we're now really at that cusp of genomics impacting day to day healthcare decisions. It's not quite there. And as you know, I'm from the South, so I have some Southern phrases, one of which is, <laughs> we're fixing to. So we're fixing to, to be able to offer genomics at the point of care. But, you know, case in point, our own employees, our, what we call our, our teammates, mm-hmm. were all offered an opportunity to buy a relatively inexpensive gene study. All of a sudden, we have 30,000 people who have access to that, and they now show up in their primary care, their OB, their pediatrician's office, saying, doctor, nurse practitioner, case manager, what do I do with this? What does it mean that I have alpha-1? What does it mean that I carry the gene for hemochromatosis? Or maybe even more concerning, I have the gene for Alzheimer's, so apo Epsilon-4, double allele, Hmm. what does that mean? And what does it mean if you're 10 years old and they found that out on you? Hmm. So that world is just exploding. And I would say many of our systems yet, whether it's in the office or in the hospital system, are not yet prepared to respond to the public's uh, need and desire for that information. You know, I was sitting with a group of providers this week and we were saying, you know, you don't always have to understand something to use it. There's a lot about smartphone that I don't understand, but I sure know how to to use it. When someone's tested like myself and I found out through pharmacogenomics that there's a certain medication that if they gave it to me, I would slough my mucosa. I don't really have to understand whether it's CYP219 or whatever the number might be. Just put it in my chart. Yeah. in fact when we went to put it in my chart we didn't have any spaces in the chart for genomic information so i said just put it under allergies just make it so violently strong that nobody yeah. will give me
0: that yeah. medication
1: yeah. so the future is quickly impinging on the present and we are all scrambling to, to uh, adapt to it yeah
0: such a fascinating uh, space of genomics and and i uh, and i love your love your point here gene you don't have to understand it to use it. And just as long as you you could realize the benefit, get the outcome you're looking for, I think that's such a great piece of advice.
1: doesn't mean we won't need more genetic counselors. Surely we will, or some way of getting, you know, again, mass information out to the people on an individualized basis. Mm -hmm. But for many things, especially in the pharmacogenomics space, it's just, you can't take Plavix, you can't take Coumadin, you can't take this SSRI, you shouldn't take that other behavioral health med. That would go a long way. You know that when people are receiving care for behavioral health issues, most people spend at least $400 out of pocket before their psychiatrist or their family physician or internist, whoever's doing the prescribing, gets them to the right med or the right level of med or the right combination of med. If they spend about $100 out of pocket and had some testing is sifting beforehand, you know, wouldn't it be fascinating to see if they could get to that right combo sooner?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely you got to find ways to get better. I'm
1: beginning to preach now. I I realize that. I probably (laughs) ought to back it off a little bit.
0: (laughs) Hey, but you know. Can I still
1: have the sixth graders'
0: enthusiasm? uh, You certainly do, Gene. That's something (laughs) that we can all learn from you about. So give us us an example of, of how you and your team have created results by doing things differently.
1: Okay. We call ourselves a small but mighty team. We also refer to ourselves as Sherpas. In fact, we even have a podcast called The Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Uh, We are multidisciplinary, so I have people with business development background, biomedical engineers, people who have been in consulting, people with public health. I even hired a designer from the Parsons School of Design. First time we had somebody like that come into the hospital system. That obviously caused for creation of a new job code. When our team gets asked to look at a problem, let's say one of our current problems is memory care. The number of people that have memory issues, whether it's Alzheimer's or one or the other, vary, not only is very large right now, but we are on the, you know, like the opening scene of a tsunami. We quickly added up as we were doing some of the preliminary scouting work that in Charlotte there's probably mm, thirty-five thousand people that already carry that diagnosis through their electronic medical record they've already been coded. That is like filling the Cleveland Indians stadium. And then we turn around and look at the resources that we would have to support that whole stadium full of people hmm. We realize we only have one geriatric position. <laughs> it would be like going to a, a, a big sports stadium and only having one bathroom or one hot dog stand or one guy selling beer. You know, which would probably be the real crisis for the stand. Um, but literally, you know, as you can tell, I use a lot of visual representations because yeah, people remember that way. Well, it's not going to be very long until Charlotte not only has one stadium full, but we're going to have two stadiums full. And yet our way to scale our resources, the way to address people that are in the hospital. My sister recently was in the hospital for shoulder replacement. She has Alzheimer's. And one of us from the family stayed in the room because well-meaning nurses and doctors would come in and chat with her, and she was delightful, and she gives lovely answers, and they have no relationship to reality. Mm -hmm. And so we have to sit there and say, no, (laughs) she hasn't eaten today. Yes, she can take this. No, she's allergic to penicillin. So our system has not yet caught up with how do we not just treat them and their disease, but how do we treat them? How do we talk to them? How do we interact with them? A few years ago, I think many healthcare systems were becoming aware of their need to be more culturally sensitive. Well, in the same way now, we need to become memory sensitive because in our hospitals, not surprisingly, it's often an older population, and the prevalence now is just amazing. So we applied some of those tools of innovation, like we went out and did ethnography and sat in clinics and watched the interactions. I even got permission to follow my sister and video her so that I could show it to my team members. They could see how confused she gets at check-in and Mm -hmm. how simple signs that look straightforward to other people don't look straightforward to her. And then we started working with the stakeholders, the neurologists, the people who had really been owning this need over the last couple of decades. And it was interesting as we took them through the, the tools of innovation, they began to appreciate that there were some moments that mattered like the first time you give somebody the diagnosis. And what they realized was we were not meeting people's needs. You know, we love the phrase jobs to be done. When a family member, say my brother-in-law, brought my sister the first time, his job to be done was, can you tell me if it's safe for my wife to drive? I've noticed some change in her thinking. Is it safe for her to drive? Can I leave her at home by herself? Well, we all first, oh, there must be technology or an app or a web. When we went and asked people and watched them and interface with them, what we realized was they wanted a pretty simple booklet, about a 20-page booklet, not the 36-hour, the first 36 hours, which is a well-respected book on how to handle somebody with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. It's written for lay people for caregivers, but they wanted like the first 20 pages worth. Fast forward, we've created that book. We've put it in a special bag that has our logo on it. People are thrilled because we're meeting their that's felt great. need in that moment. So while there's some days that we may be working on predictive analytics, I think the days that we work on some of these simple human need issues as important, maybe even more important because we're touching people right at their pain point.
0: I think that's so great, Gene, that you guys did that. And it goes back to your message at the beginning of, of our podcast here where you said, hey, you know, innovation." doesn't have to be a shiny object. It's a redoing of a business process, a business model, or even addressing the need, such as a booklet, right, to help guide where there is no guidance. And and so huge, huge success there. What would you say an example of a a setback that you guys have had that you learned a lot from that's made you better?
1: Well, it's easy when people talk about innovation to say you've got to embrace failure. Like You want people that have a constitution for that because either we're really strong and hearty people or we have a uh, psychiatric diagnosis because it is true. Almost every single day we're hearing a thousand points of no, we're failing, we're being shot down. But I'll just tell one. Okay. We had read some literature a few years ago that most patients when they're discharged from the hospital actually don't take in enough calories the first few days after they're home to really start the healing process. We saw how in one particular state, the Medicaid provider and the Medicare providers were sending meals home with patients. We thought, wow, what if we did that? We discharged 10,000 patients a year. What if we sent home four or five days worth of frozen meals? So by the time they got home and then, you know, the, the church sign up or the meal train or the neighborhood let's take Aunt Mary some pasta, got Mm -hmm. kicked in, they would have already had the right meal. So we called it Food is Medicine. Hmm. We presented the literature, in fact, to our senior physician executive. And he said, oh, this makes so much sense. The evidence is overwhelming. Go do this and don't do a pilot. Just just do it for everybody. Yeah. Well, (laughs) we held our ground and we said, no, really the principles of innovation are start small, iterate, so we said, we're going to start small. So we picked a hospital that had a very aged population. And then we realized, hmm, we're giving out food. Is that a, a conflict with the federal government? So then we had to talk to the lawyers and compliance. Because what if that's a form of enurement? Hmm. Huh. Then we realized we might have to have a restaurant license because we're giving out food. So then we had to check to see if we had to have a restaurant license. <laughs> then we realized we had to have a place to store the foods. We had to buy refrigerators. And then we had to figure out when somebody was going to get discharged, so we could give them the frozen meal kit to go home. Long story short, it was a huge failure. Um. <laughs> and this, you know, now it's so humorous in retrospect. The people didn't like the food. Oh boy! It tasted just like <laughs> hospital food to them. And what they wanted was um, home cooking. lasagna, and they wanted meatloaf and mashed yeah. potatoes and gravy. Yeah. And fried chicken. And of course, yeah. none of the things that our dieticians would have approved. Yeah. And we kid that one guy on our team ended up eating the majority of the meals. Because we <laughs> finally say, hey, I think there's 17 of those meals still left in the freezer. <laughs> so, that is awesome. You know, what did that teach us? One, it re- reassured us that start small. You know, yeah. Start someplace and really work the bugs out. Uh, mm-hmm. We heard about one meal prep company like Blue Apron or HelloFresh. I forget which one. But they started with a single customer and worked for six months so they could get the meals, the portions, the freshness, the delivery, all the bugs worked out. And many folks want to jump to that conclusion. We also learned we're not really good at being in the food business. I mean, if you've ever eaten at a hospital, you already know that to begin with. Right. And this was not going to be our strong suit. So we finally chalked it up to a learning curve that will eat the rest of the meals and then went on to another project
0: my goodness some great great insights there and uh, you know you guys take it and, and with a stride and and you've you've made some some great choices based off that and in the future well the programs that came after that and Gene, you're a student of innovation I mean I know you you you've spent a lot of time studying it and doing it you know some work with MIT and Harvard Business School and on just, you know, studying what it is and, and implementing it in, in meaningful ways. So I appreciate you sharing those those tidbits with the listeners today. What would you say one of your proudest leadership moments has been to date?
1: Wow. That's hard for me to even narrow down to one, because one of the things that really personally drives me, you know, I mentioned this intersection of, of science and humanity, but the second is watching people develop. and. Mm. I have had such pleasure and I have such pride in watching the team that I have grow and thrive. You know, Ann Summers Hogg was quoted in Wall Street Journal. Another guy on our team, Jay Gerhardt, is your classic strategic planner. He used to work at one of the big companies that does consulting. You would have thought he would be the last person to come over into innovation. Not only has he come over, he leads our consumer strategy and he has now trained himself by going to Second City and how to do improv. Really? He learned that improv helps innovation. When I see folks thrive, and I see them find find their zone, find their space, and where they begin to build a national reputation of their own, it just gives me huge pride. Hmm. A few years ago, we were asked to help with virtual behavioral health. And this was, gosh, now five, six years ago, and our senior position executive said, We need behavioral health, and we need it in primary care. Well, as soon as he said that, I thought, oh, I've seen models of that. People take a psychologist and embed them in a practice, and they call it behavioral health integration. And those models are actually quite successful, both in improving care for the patients, delivering access, reducing costs, and improving chronic illness. So I thought, I know how to do that. And then he looked at me and said, -uh, you got to be virtual and no new FTEs. In fact, his phrase was, go virtual or go home. And he was right because he said, 10 years from now, we're going to look over our shoulders at anything that we built and we'll ask ourselves, why did we not move to either virtual or digital or chat more quickly? What was our hesitancy to do that? So we started with that framework. And just like the story about food is medicine, we started small. We started with the tools of ethnography. We started in a multidisciplinary way. We do bring along the operational owners right from the beginning. In fact, that's why we use the word Sherpa. Because we think Sherpa connotes someone who's wise, someone who's experienced, but the expedition leader is, at the end of the day, the person who's both got to own it. It really gets the glory for it. Yeah. So we'll come along and say, look, we have some tools in ethnography. We have some tools in business model innovation. We can do a value prop canvas for you. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to read this. So our head of psychiatry, our SVP over behavioral health, Some frontline psychiatrists were all in the room with us as we were designing this together. And when we went to roll it out, we did it in one practice, just one group of doctors. And we even kept the psychiatrist on site that first week. I don't know what we thought was going to happen, like (laughs) the building catch on fire or somebody have a seizure or something, but we wanted to make sure, just like opening a restaurant, that we didn't either miss somebody or miss something. Or maybe what we thought we had designed, we call our design center the treehouse, because children always go up into a treehouse to imagine things. So what we had designed in the treehouse, we wanted to make sure that it worked on the front line. I'm so glad that we tested it so well before we opened it. In fact, we took our own members, the innovation group, through that week, and we kept pretending we were patients, and we purposely would score that we were having suicidal ideation to make sure that the machinery and everything picked it up. When we went live with patients in that first week, three people answered question number nine. I'm having thoughts about you know, killing myself or harming myself. So we are so glad that we had built it that way. After showing that it worked in that environment, and as people, if they do score high, they get offered an opportunity right then and there to talk to a bank of licensed psychologists who help screen them. They do kind of a just-in-time counsel and figure out, do you need face-to-face counseling, you need to have your meds adjusted, and maybe that's why things aren't just right. So they work through it with the patient. It helps the primary care doctor's workflow, because here we've essentially taken them out of that queue, taken care of the issue, and then we put them back with the primary care doc, and if needed, they can get on the phone and do a just-in-time consult for the psychiatrist about the meds. That work has been recognized by the National Council on Community Health or Community Mental Health. We won an award from Bass Company for design and health. You know, but most important, we now have touched 100,000 people with this. You know, this gets back to my original mantra about the intersection of science and, and, and the humanness of people. 100,000 people, and we can see that their anxiety has improved, their depression has improved. Even that very difficult question, 83% of the people who said, I'm having suicidal ideation, um, said, I've never had another suicidal thought after you brought me into the program and got me the help that I need. And as a byproduct, we also watched their hemoglobin A1C drop appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so we knew if we could help people's mental health, we could help their overall health. And now we have docs who are not afraid to broach anxiety and depression because they've got a resource and it's a resource that doesn't disrupt their workflow. So I guess if you talk about a project that we are most proud of and has been referred to by others on the outside, it'd probably be our work in virtual behavioral health.
0: Love it. What a great example. And I mean, numbers don't lie and you've helped a lot of people and you guys are definitely making a, a big difference. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So, Gene, getting close to the end of our time together here, I wish we had some more time. This has definitely been a, a very insightful conversation. Uh, I know the listeners are, are probably jotting down notes, hitting rewind, wanting to hear some of the tidbits again. Um, that's the beauty of podcasting is you could always go back and listen. Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. this part of the, the podcast, it's a lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some, some questions, five in total. Uh, you'll provide just lightning round uh, responses, and then we'll finish that with a favorite book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Okay. <laughs> All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes?
1: I think get on the front line with the patients. I think we've tried too long to improve it, figure it out from conference rooms, from PowerPoints, shadow patients, get out there in the space and watch you know, both the handoffs that are occurring and the ones that are being dropped.
0: What's the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid?
1: I think this runs parallel to question number one, and that's thinking you know the answer. We have up in the wall of our design area, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Every day we're being pitched by young startup companies who have the greatest gizmo widget technology. You got to go back to the problem and really solve for the problem. Just like we found out it was a booklet that people wanted, not a, a technology or an app.
0: Love that. What do you do to stay relevant as an organization despite constant change?
1: We approach life with intentionality. In fact, mm-hmm. we even use that phrase intentional serendipity. Mm-hmm. We put ourselves on field trips. You know, we're here in Charlotte, and so we have the opportunity to go visit Lowe's and we learn about how they're planning for the year 2040 and That's cool. how they understand that their mission is to love where you live. It's not sell you a great set of tools. It's love where you live. And so we can relate to that. We can go to NASCAR and see a highly regulated industry have to redesign itself every year. We can look at the banking industry. So we do field trip Fridays. We host groups from analogous organizations. And sometimes we just go to things that are completely out of our wheelhouse. (laughs) And invariably, you know, something comes back.
0: That is so great. I love that. So folks, something to think about. When's the last time you or your team took a field trip Friday and explored the business model of somebody else that's doing something completely different? You'd be surprised what you could apply there. Thanks for that, Gene. How about the last one here? What's one area of focus that drives everything in your organization?
1: We often say our job is to accelerate the transformation of healthcare. If we can come in and help someone be first at something, that's great. If we can't help them be the first, all right, can we help them be as fast as they can in moving to that? And then are there some ways that we can help them skip some steps? So for us, many times it's taking people through a walkthrough of something that they never even thought they could do. Um, We might use a 3P or some other design tool or skill uh, to help them see that the future is possible we we'll often use the phrase "How we'll say setting reality aside." How might we? And then we start talking about that future state. And sure enough, people can then begin to work backwards and go. You know, I really think I can get up there.
0: Love that. This one is uh, what is your number one health habit?
1: Probably getting enough sleep. Well, I didn't know you were going to get so personal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> These are sort of the non-business ones. That's big for me, and they're, they're fun. Uh the the other one is Well is, I
1: learned you know a few uh-huh. years ago I was looking at, at the literature about metabolic syndrome and all those sorts of things and I thought, wow, you know, I may not be able to influence a whole lot of these other things, but in terms of helping with stress, yeah, helping with creativity, because I do have to be creative at work, helping with resetting my own cortisol, which makes a big difference in how you metabolize different foods. Here's one that I both would like to do and would be good for everybody. Uh-huh. And so I'm pretty close to an eight hour a night sleeper, which That's for awesome. 30 years as anesthesiologist intensivist, I was probably a four hour a night sleeper. Yeah. So an intentional change that has had big benefit.
0: That's huge. That is huge. Yeah. Congrats on that. I definitely work hard to get seven to eight daily as well. And I noticed yeah. the difference. What, what is your and number a nap
1: one? Every one? Now and then
0: it's really good too. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Absolutely!
1: Yeah, the Chinese have something to teach us about that. Taking a little midday nap.
0: No, I have so, I have a lot to learn from my wife. She's a great napper. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what would you say your number one success habit is?
1: I think my number one success habit is not being afraid to ask people for advice. I learned that early in my career. In fact, there was a time where I, I wrote a letter to someone who was very well known both in pediatrics, as an academic, and as a hospital leader. And I start off with, you don't know me, but I'm trying <laughs> to make a decision about my career. Can you help me? From then on, every time I need something, I write people. If I don't know them, That's or wonderful. you know, now that we have the advantage of LinkedIn, I'll say, you know, Joe, you know, Bob, could you connect us so I could talk to him about mm-hmm. you know, predictive analytics at the bedside? We're so afraid to ask. And I don't know how much gender impacts it. I sense it's a little bit easier for women than men. Maybe that's too much overgeneralization. But I think for any of us who have had some degree of success, sometimes we're afraid of be seen as a sign of weakness. You know, I really don't know the social in- Can you teach me? Or I don't understand how this model of analytics is different than somebody else. And I always feel like I end up becoming Tom Sawyer. I ask other people, and then they come along to paint the fence for me. That's but I'd awesome. say that key to success is not, uh, not being shy about asking, a- asking for help.
0: I love that, Gene. What a great piece of advice there. What book would you recommend to the listeners?
1: Whew. I'm going to go to an old one. Okay. It's called Leading Quietly. And the author is a professor at Harvard. He's probably in his 60s, maybe even a little beyond that now. I think his last name's Joe... That Rocco, I might be mispronouncing his last name. I'm not even sure the book's still in print. But one of the things I like about that book is it shows you that life is not always fair. doesn't always work out the way you want it to. There's just some really practical leadership case studies in there that, in fact, recently um, I'm serving as an interim in one of the areas of our system. And I said to the men and women in that section, for the next eight or 12 weeks, you're going to have me as an interim leader let me share with you some of my favorite you know, books or chapters. And I pulled out Reading Quietly and said, mm-hmm. here's a book, I think. If you only read chapter two, read that one and you know, you'll get some great insight. So some of the best books out there are actually some of the oldies and goldies.
0: Oh, I love it. That's one that I'll definitely be looking for, Gene. So thank you for that. And listeners, you could find all of the awesome insights that we've discussed today. Just go to our website, go to outcomesrocket.health. And in the search bar, type in Jean. You'll find her information there, Gene Wright. Or you could type in Atrium Health. Either of those two key phrases will pop up the podcast, a full transcript, as well as show notes of today's episode. So Jean, leave us with a closing thought and uh, the best way that the listeners could learn more about your work.
1: All right. Well, I would say the number one barrier to innovation is that people don't start that's another one of the phrases that we have up on the wall in our innovation engine workplace. It's start. Start somewhere. Start small. Get over that barrier of inertia. And the people that are successful are the ones that, you know, that started someplace. Yes, we're on the web. We're the innovation engine. We have a podcast, so you can use your favorite tool to download it, um, A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. You can find us all sorts of places. So I'm at Dr. Gene Wright, or you can follow us through Innovation Engine.
0: Outstanding. Gene, this has been awesome. I've enjoyed it so much, and I know listeners have too. So I just want to say a big thank you to you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the work that you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast.